bell-bottoms, disco, and the rising popularity of cassette tapes. These things are all hallmarks of the 1970s, but the 70s in America was also an unsettling era, which spread fear thanks to the likes of Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, and John Wayne Gacy. As the grim nature of serial slayers continued to unfold throughout the decade, several creepy, unsettling cases went by unnoticed and continue to go unsolved. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be looking at just two unsolved cases from the 1970s. Brian McDermott. Brian Douglas McDermott was a 10-year-old schoolboy who went missing from Belfast in 1973. Described as a quiet child, Brian was the youngest of three sons and two daughters born to Edward and Joan McDermott. Around 1 p.m. on September 2nd, 1973, Brian left his home on Well Street in Lower Woodstock Road to play with his friends at the park. He was due home for Sunday lunch at 2.30 p.m., but he never arrived. Brian's worried parents immediately called authorities, who gathered a search party to look for the missing boy. The surrounding areas were meticulously combed through, derelict buildings were searched, and the Tellymore Forest Park was investigated, but no trace of the 10-year-old could be found. Then, a week later, on Saturday, September 8th, during searches of the River Lagan, the water was lowered so that the police could have a closer look. What they found upon draining the water was a parent's worst nightmare, a sack containing the dismembered body of parts of Brian McDermott. One arm and two legs were missing, and these limbs have never been recovered, despite investigators' desperate attempts to locate them. The body was also burned, leading authorities to suspect that after the slaying, the perpetrator had attempted to disguise Brian's true identity by burning his flesh. Local parents feared for the safety of their children, terrified that a killer walked among them, while the McDermott family fell to pieces and began to grieve for their lost child and brother. Brian was laid to rest on September 13th, 1973. While thousands of interviews were carried out, tips were thoroughly investigated, and a huge manhunt for the culprit was carried out, the police felt like they were running out of leads. They reportedly looked for sectarian links, paedophile rings, and witchcraft theories, but none of them turned up any promising leads. They also briefly considered links to the Kinkora Boys' Home in Belfast. This was due to the idea in 1982 that Brian's case concerned, quote, possible homosexual aspects. The home was the scene of numerous serious sexual abuse allegations, which led to a massive scandal and attempted cover-up in 1980. There were even rumors about state collusion and whisperings that a paedophile ring was operating from inside the home, which had links to intelligence services. However, there has never been any established connection between Brian's case and the boys' home. The authorities also looked into 16-year-old William McDermott, Brian's older brother. 
They had suspected that perhaps he had taken childish revenge on his younger sibling after Brian had hit him in the back with a stick. The police had had their eye on him for a while, but it wasn't until 1976 that they were able to pull him in for questioning when his mother reported him for beating her. William did confess during questioning, but quickly recanted this admission of guilt, and ever since, he has maintained his innocence and claimed that the confession was coerced. Then, in 2008, his ex-wife told a court in Worcester that he had admitted to ending Brian's life. This was heard during a hearing over William sending his ex-wife threatening and abusive texts. William has other convictions for violent offenses, but continues to maintain his innocence. Brian's older brother, Eddie, who was 19 at the time of his disappearance, has acted as the family's spokesman over the years. He has publicly stated that the family are estranged from William, having cut ties with him long ago. Eddie, in particular, believes that William is guilty of what happened to Brian in September of 1973, claiming that he grew suspicious when William said that he didn't want a book published about Brian's case when a writer approached the family in 2003. He even went so far as to contact his local MP, asking for him to put a stop to it. According to Eddie, William began to deteriorate after this, growing more aggressive and dangerous. In 1993, the Irish newspaper The Sunday Life received an anonymous letter and drawing of a suspect in connection with the case. The letter claimed the man in the drawing lived close to where Brian went missing, and even provided an address. However, nothing else seems to have come of this lead. Brian's case went largely under the radar in the 1970s due to the troubles in Ireland. Even now, information on the case is sparse. In 2003, it was noted that the police still refused to rule out any potential connections to both witchcraft or paedophilia. After the unjust slaying of Brian, his parents turned to drink, and the family spent most of their days on the edge of breakdowns. Joan McDermott believed her son, William, was involved, right up until her death in 2004. The case of Brian McDermott continues to go unsolved. Anyone with any information on Brian's case should contact Crime Stoppers at 0800 555 one. Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw. On August 4th, 1971, two best friends, Rhonda Renee Johnson, who preferred to go by her middle name and was 14 years old, and Sharon Lynn Shaw, who was 13, spent the afternoon at the Galveston Bay Beach in Texas. A friend of theirs, Glenda Willis, told the Houston Chronicle in 2015 that the girls planned to go to the Wicks Water Ski School that day, but the wind had made the bayou too rough for water skiing. When she saw them at the beach and was ready to go home, she offered them a lift, but the girls declined. Witnesses last placed the girls walking on Sewell Boulevard in Galveston, but Rene and Sharon never returned home. On January 3rd, 1972, two boys fishing in Clear Lake found a human skull floating in the water. The pair thought at first it was a sports ball, but soon found out that that wasn't the case. Six weeks later, searchers found the rest of the body and that of another in the marshes near the water. In February of 1972, the skull's teeth were compared to the dental records of Sharon Shaw, who'd gone missing six months prior. Sharon's crucifix necklace was found wrapped around the skull. 
the body was positively identified as that of the 13-year-old girl. The other set of remains found were later identified as Rene's, but the bodies of both girls were too badly decomposed to determine a cause of death. A few months later, in May of 1972, authorities received a tip from a man named Glenn Price, who was a local city councilman. He advised that the police look into a sex offender named Michael Lloyd Self, who worked at a gas station and had been guilty of several peeping Tom incidents. It didn't take long for the police to look into this tip, and they visited Michael at his workplace. They asked him to come down to the station for questioning, and the next day, Michael arrived voluntarily, ready to answer the inquiries that the law enforcement may have for him. When asked if he knew the girls, Michael admitted that he did recognize them, but said he didn't know them. After this, however, things changed. According to Michael's story, Chief Michael Morris held him in confinement for hours, telling him he couldn't leave unless he confessed. He claimed that he was held up against a wall, hit with a nightstick, and taunted by Chief Morris with his pistol. Morris threatened to kill Michael if he didn't confess to the murders. Worn down and terrified, Michael agreed to confess. He was reportedly forced to handwrite his confession and then made to rewrite it several times. Later on, an investigator named Dave Coburn would corroborate Michael's story that he was coerced into writing the confession. Coburn even wanted to be a witness at Michael's trial, but he was never called. Coburn had seen Police Chief Morris treat another suspect in this exact same manner a year prior to the tragic case of Rene Johnson and Sharon Shaw. The final signed confession produced by Michael contained several discrepancies. He claimed that he dumped the bodies of the girls in El Lago, over 20 miles from the marshlands where the remains were found. He also said that he had strangled both, but neither showed signs of strangulation during the coroner's inquest. Three days later, he provided still more conflicting stories, telling two deputy sheriffs that he'd picked the girls up from a Sizzler steakhouse, driven around an El Largo neighborhood with them, and then gotten food with them at a local jack-in-the-box restaurant. After this, he claimed he struck both girls over the head with a glass Coca-Cola bottle before stripping them of their clothing and throwing it onto the highway, despite the fact that both girls were found with their clothing. There were also witnesses who claimed to have seen the girls in Galveston around 9pm on the night they disappeared, while Michael claimed that at that time, the girls were in his car with him. Two weeks later, Michael Self was checked out of jail by sheriff's deputies and driven to the locations he mentioned in his written confession. The deputies took photos of him in each location, and these photos were later presented in court during his trial as a third confession, while Michael's lawyer rebutted this, claiming that what they'd done was illegal. Michael's trial began on May 15, 1973, and finished on September 18, 1974. He was convicted for the first-degree murder of Sharon Shaw, but was not convicted for the slaying of Rene Johnson. He was sentenced to life in prison. Over the years, Michael continuously tried to appeal the court's decision until he had no appeals left. He was refused each and every time. Even after it came to light that Chief Morris and Deputy Tommy Deal had been involved in a string of robberies that had begun in 1972. The pair were arrested, with Morris being sentenced to 55 years and Deal being sentenced to 30. 
although for many it seemed reasonable to investigate whether a thorough job had been done in regards to Sharon and Renee's cases, Michael's appeals and attempts at parole were continuously denied. Michael's self died in prison from cancer in 2000. An article from the Houston Chronicle in 2011 noted that Michael's lawyer had stated his belief that his client was wrongly accused and coerced into a false confession. Two investigating officers, one Galveston police officer and a former prosecutor for Harris County, also share this belief. Since the untimely demise of both Rene Johnson and Sharon Shaw, there have been multiple other possible suspects beyond Michael Self. In April of 1890, an unidentified man in Taylor Lake, Texas, walked into his local police department and claimed to have committed the crime. During his confession, he allegedly admitted that he had tied both of them down with an electrical cord. This was something the police knew about, but had never made public so they could distinguish the real killer from the false confessions. The man reportedly suffered from psychosis and for some reason, despite the details he had given, he was later dismissed as a suspect by police. Then in 1998, a man named Edward Harold Bell wrote multiple letters to prosecutors in Galveston and Harris County, confessing to the slayings of several young girls, some as young as 12 between 1971 and 1977 in the Galveston, Clear Lake, Dickinson, Houston, and Alvin areas. At the time, Bell was serving a 70-year sentence for the cold-blooded killing of an ex-Marine named Larry Dickens in Pasadena, 1978, whom he had shot dead when the man had tried to stop him from publicly masturbating in front of a group of teenage girls. Bell had gone on the run for 14 years, but was eventually located in 1993 in Panama, living with a teenage girl. In August of 2015, Bell admitted to taking the lives of 11 young women. He chillingly named them the 11 that went to heaven. He then went on to claim that he'd been brainwashed and forced to execute the girls by a secret organization. He died, age 82, on April 20th, 2019, and his potential involvement with the deaths of Sharon Shaw and Rene Johnson is still being investigated. With all the unexplored options and coerced confessions, it is unlikely if we'll ever truly know what happened on that tragic day of August 4th, 1971 to the two best friends, Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you are still hungry for true crime content, you can check out the Cold Case Detective podcast by following the link below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.